0: The Axe Files with your host David Axelrod.
1: Bill Bradley was a childhood hero of mine when he was a star for the really great New York Knicks uh, teams. Uh, but then he became something more than an athlete; he became a United States senator, and there he led the last real successful effort. For genuine tax reform, that means blowing up all these egregious loopholes in order to lower rates. There's talk of tax reform again, uh, although it doesn't sound like that. So I thought I'd go and talk to Bill Bradley, and I did the other day. Uh, Bill Bradley, so good to see you. Good to see you, David. So one of my favorite roasts, of all time, I don't know if you remember this, was one of you. I can't remember. I know you didn't do it for your own benefit. It may have been for the benefit of your campaign or something in 2000. But I know Jesse Jackson was a roaster. Uh. And um, you guys each got off great lines at, at the other's expense. But he had a whole riff about how sorry he felt for you because there you were, a young man, you know, wanting to be a great basketball player and you had to put up with all of the challenges that came from coming from the right side of the tracks. Right. Uh, But that was, that was true. You grew up. That was
2: 1988. Yes. And my response to Jesse. I loved
1: it. I remember it.
2: Was to say, ah, Reverend Jackson, a man of the cloth, cashmere.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Two of the great roast lines of all time, but I want to talk about Crystal City, Missouri, and how you uh, you grew up, because sure. um, your dad was a, one, mm-hmm. like one of these great American stories who worked his way up from sure the lowest yeah. part of this little community bank to become its president. Yeah, but he wasn't the impetus behind your ba- like your mom was the parent who was uh, into your basketball.
2: Well, I think that uh, neither one of them was really into my basketball. (laughs) Uh, You know, my father, the town I grew up in was about 3,000 people on the banks of the Mississippi River. It was a multi-ethnic, multi-racial factory town. When I grew up, there were 3,000 people working in a glass factory. And um, my father, uh, who had... No, did not graduate from high school and went to work in the bank, as he said, when he was 21 years old, shining pennies, had worked his way up. And my mother was a energetic, church-going, civic club-attending, high college graduate who poured all of her energy into one thing, me. You, you I, were an only child. I was an only child. And um, so I grew up in that town. And... Um, My parents obviously played a big role. My mother, I remember seeing a picture of my mother in 1927 when she was in high school. uh, It was a picture of a basketball team. But that's the extent. My father had never seen a basketball game. And my father was what we call today disabled. Mm -hmm. He had calcified arthritis of the lower spine. I never saw him tie his shoes, throw a ball, drive a car. And he just worked in, in the bank and was on the school the treasurer of the school board for over 20 years. And um, he uh, saw his first basketball game when I think I was in the 7th or 8th grade. And uh, in high school, my mother would be in the stands yelling. and My <laughs> father would be in a special chair at one end of the court over on the right.
1: And maybe relieved that he wasn't sitting next to your mother. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, she would. She was like into it. She would. She would scream. She would yell at the ref. She would. Now, were you? uh, Was that uh, discomforting to you?
2: No, as a as a player, you never pay attention to who, no matter who's up there screaming, whether it's your mother or the opponent's mother.
1: Yeah, because you were so (laughs) intensely into into the game. So, tell me what. what about basketball? I mean, you're a big guy. That's one thing. But what what about it uh, attracted you to the point that you kind of became obsessive about yeah. perfecting your game?
2: Yeah, but... <clears throat> um... Well, there are a lot of ways to answer that question. When I was 14 years old, I went to a basketball camp that was put on by a pro named Easy Ed McCauley. Easy Ed
1: McCauley from the St. Louis Hawks. And
2: Easy Ed McCauley um, would assemble the campers, about 100 of us, every day and give us a little talk. And one day he said, remember, if you're not practicing, somebody somewhere is practicing. And if you two meet, given roughly equal ability, he's going to win. And so I decided I never wanted to lose because I hadn't put in the effort. So that meant from the time I was 13, I spent three hours every afternoon during the week playing basketball and five hours on Saturday and Sunday for nine, ten months a year.
1: And oftentimes by yourself, right? It wasn't that you weren't just messing around. You were trying to perfect yeah. different aspects of your game, yeah, I mean, sometimes alone.
2: I grew up in this small town and... I didn't play football, a lot of people played football, there weren't that many more people, one or two guys would work out with me. And so I would essentially choreograph the reverse pivot or the crossover dribble or the turnaround jump shot or the dribble jump shot or the reverse layup. And I'd just go through it over and over and over and I would put glasses that blocked my vision down so I couldn't see the ball. So I had to learn to bounce the ball. without. These were
1: of your own invention, devices uh, yeah. that you came up with to well, challenge I, yourself.
2: Uh, I think that the, I, I didn't make these glasses, mm-hmm. so somebody made them, but uh-huh. uh, I would do that. And then I would uh, stack chairs, uh, like 10 chairs. So it'd be like eight feet high. And, and I'd shoot my hook shots over the eight foot chairs and All the things you do when you're uh, committed and when you are uh, alone uh, in a small town.
1: You know, um, I did a podcast uh, a while back with Joe Madden, who's the manager of the Chicago Cubs. And uh, someone had told me that Joe never talks about winning to the players. And I said, well, why don't don't you talk about winning? He said, because winning, everybody wants to win. But if all you're thinking about is winning and losing you lose focus, you get tight. He said, process is fearless. He said, if you concentrate on the process, the rest takes care of itself. And so I'm thinking about that as uh, I... Yeah, well, that's
2: very true. Uh, John Wooden was not a good game coach. And
1: the way he... Great UCLA coach, UCLA won many coach titles.
2: A 10 or 11, mm-hmm. NCAA, more than anybody else. And he, um, he said that, if I do my job, which is every day teach people how to play basketball, then my job is done by the time we get to the game because they'll go out there and do it. Yeah, And I think that's true. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of that. I think there's a little too much made of the decision the coach makes in the second quarter or whatever. The issue is do you have a team that understands what the basic rules are? When I was with the Knicks, the basic rules were hit the open man uh, help out on defense and Red Holtzman's rules. And yes. the third rule was the hotel bar belongs to me.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, I uh, I grew up, I, I hate to say this because it makes it, and you've heard it a million times, but I grew up in New York. At that time, I was a teenager when the Knicks went from bad to good. Mm-hmm. You were there for that journey. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Red Holtzman, uh, who was the great coach of your teams and turned you guys – you guys were a great unit. I mean, the team itself. But he – I remember one year – and this was probably late in your career. may have been at at the very end of your career. You guys were eliminated from the playoffs, and they asked Red about it, and he kind of shrugged and said, sometimes the other guys are just better than you, and you got to go home. And I thought that was so disarming, you know. Well, you uh, know,
2: one thing – uh, if you go look at all of the press reports of the year's red coach, he never said one word that was negative about any one of his players in the press, but you know in the locker room or in the huddle, you know he would rip you apart, but he didn't get into that game
1: didn't embarrass didn't, didn't embarrass, embarrass any players right. um so in terms of you're, you, you, there was a, a great book written about you by John McPhee, who was a wonderful writer for The New Yorker, uh, called A Sense of Where You Are. Explain where the title of that came from.
2: Well, just as a point of interest, uh, right before this interview, I was talking to a guy who's writing an article for the New York Times Magazine about John McPhee. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because John's published his uh, penultimate book about... Uh, writing, Mm -hmm. how to write, and it's an incredible book.
1: And the book he wrote about you was a a joy to read. That was
2: his first book, and um,
1: And you were just a college student at time. I was a college student. His
2: father was uh, the college sports doctor, and John decided he wanted to write an article, and he he always wanted to write for The New Yorker, and Mm -hmm. never had many things rejected, and so he wrote this piece about me, and and put it in New Yorker and later a book. and It was his first book and first piece in New Yorker. And the title of Since Where You Are uh, comes from where he's, he's, you know, we're in the gym alone and going through things. And I have a shot across the middle that I actually modeled off of Jerry West. Mm-hmm. And so I see it in the baskets behind me. And I see where I'm on the court and I throw the ball up. And it goes in he said, How'd you do that? And I said, "Well, you just have to have a sense of where you are on the court." Right. And that took on a larger metaphor. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, we'll, we'll, we'll. I want to get into the rest of your life, but um, you kind of you calibrated your life according to your own sense of where you were at various times. <laughs> yeah,
2: and but, uh, and the years with the Knicks were great years, obviously. Uh, Because of the group of people that I played with. And uh, it was the first time I lived in a predominantly African-American world. And uh, I learned more from my teammates than they ever learned from me. And to give you an idea of the caliber of the character of the people, uh, Cassie Russell, who's a Chicago guy, and I, for the first couple of years I was on the team, before he was traded were involved in this intense competition yeah divided New York fans the some people like Bradley some people yeah. like Russell and we were extremely intense you know on the other side of the floor would be uh, Phil Jackson Dave DeBusschere, and DeBusschere would say to Jackson hey let's take it easy we got a game tomorrow night and we're hammering <laughs> you were each pounding. other and so we have and as a result we respected each other but we could never really kind of be close and uh Forty years after the nineteen seventy championship, which would be two thousand and ten, we have the fortieth anniversary of that team. So I walk into the room. And here's Cassie and Willis and Willis and, Reed. Yeah. Willis Reed and wife, spouse, friends, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I sense that I'm still just a little uh, tense about this, so I'm not. I'm not open. Uh, so the next night, the Knicks say, well, come come early to the game because we want the current Knicks to meet you. One current Knick shows up. <laughs> and so we uh, were standing around this room, and Kaz says, can I talk to you, Bill? And I said, yeah. And so I went over, and he said, Bill, I'm a Christian preacher now in South Carolina, and I cannot preach my best sermon if there's anything heavy on my heart. And so, Bill, if I ever said anything or did anything in those years that— hurt you, would you forgive me? Hmm. And I said, sure. And if I ever said and did anything in those years that hurt you, would you forgive me? He said, yes. We hugged, and 40 years of tension disappeared.
1: Yeah, that's a. The
2: character of the people you play with, the selflessness, the imagination, the uh, discipline, uh, it makes a big difference. The quality of people's character in a game is so important because if you're playing, you have to sacrifice yourself for them time nice. and time again. You know, guy tries to make a steal, misses. Somebody's got to pick up his man, so somebody's got to pick up somebody else's man. Right. And if you don't do that, you won't win. And the only reason you do that is because you're selfless. And the only
1: reason you're selfless is you know that's the only way you're going to win. I know this This may seem like a, um, uh, a leap but um, this is what I so enjoyed about some of the great campaigns that I was involved in. How Those Obama efforts. We, we all were committed to the same goal. Right. We all knew we had a role to play. Right. Uh, we knew that there would be good days and bad days and people would make mistakes and so on. And we picked each other up. And um, it was ultimately that ability to work together as a team uh, toward a shared goal and a sacrifice for that that made it work, but it also made it rewarding, you know. It really made it rewarding to be a, a part of that. Um, you and Cassie had some history before you got to the yeah, mix, right, because right. You, you guys played each other in, in the NC yeah. yeah.
2: But, I mean, your point about uh, having that happen in politics, you know, I, I, I really appreciate it, and I, I agree with you. Yeah. That any endeavor that you do as a community that is truly selfless, uh, where you're doing your part, uh, but you, you're you feeling your fulfillment in the collective achievement. Yeah, I mean, your fulfillment isn't that uh, you got 30 points. Your fulfillment is if you win a championship or the campaign. Right. And I do think there is a comparison. You might have a great group of people, terrific, everybody gets along you don't win right who cares right right so you got to win it's only when you win that you can take joy and pleasure in in what you accomplish together yeah what you you accomplish together
1: so you um you were a phenom in college and it was i mean i don't know this I, i hope you don't take this the wrong way but you weren't the most athletic Guy out, wait a minute! Dave. Wait a minute, David. <laughs> you were not te- the most. My affluent. teammates
2: on the Knicks used to joke that if I had my highest leap, you could just slip the Sunday New York Times <laughs> under my
1: feet, <laughs> and that's on a bad advertising day, probably. That's right. But that's uh, but but paper. but uh, when you graduated from Princeton, um, and you, you deferred your graduation, and I want to talk to you about that in a second. But you came to the Knicks and. I remember very well when you came and, and you got a, just this enormous contract by that day standards, half a million dollars, more than Wilt Chamberlain, uh, more than Bill Russell. What did, what did you feel about that? Uh, well,
2: that was a very important time in my life <clears throat> that uh, really helped me for the rest of my life. I mean... Yeah, I signed a bigger contract. When I came in, the average job was $9,500, and I got 125 So, yes, that was uh, that aspect of it. Um, that must
1: have been a burden, too, as well.
2: It was, but you know, other players were smart enough to know, if he gets this, the next time I'm getting a lot more. Mm-hmm. And that is indeed what happened. But when I came in, I was kind of the white hope you know, and I was this darling of the media and this high-priced player. And um, the first night I played in the Garden, seventeen-five uh, was the old Garden. Seventeen thousand five hundred people cheered every time I touched the I ball it. I, I, in I, I warm-ups. Really, I actually remember that in warm-ups, yeah. right? And uh, probably within three weeks, people realized that I was too slow to play guard and was not making it and the public turned on me and people spit on me they threw coins at me they accosted me in the streets and so it taught me a very important lesson you know and the lesson was what do you do in that kind of circumstance and the only thing you do is you work harder and work harder and I think that it also made me realize how lucky I was after that moment to have found the right niche on the right team at the right time.
1: Yeah, though I mean, as as we discussed, they became uh, you you guys became the sort of definition of smart uh, basketball. A friend of mine, uh, Sam Smith, a great journalist, Hall of Fame basketball writer from Chicago, uh, has just published uh, a book called Hard Labor. And I remember Bill Russell came to the White House when I was there, and he talked about how unfair, actually, the league was when he got there and how he got paid pretty well. A lot of his uh, teammates you know, had to have other jobs to get by sure. and so on. and how uh, tough the owners were and the league was in terms of trying to resist unions and so on. You joined in an effort to, um, to change that. Uh, how, how did you become um, involved in that? Well, and, and, and what was the, yeah. how did the change come about?
2: Um, well, it was 1965, and the players decided they wanted a union. So at the All-Star Game... The player said, we're not going out to play unless the union's recognized. Right. A couple of the owners came in threatening the players, we'll fire you tonight. You've finished in this league. Because ABC
1: was waiting to telecast right. the game.
2: They held, and the union got recognized. I came in 1967, <clears throat> and I became the player rep of the Knicks, which is the union, the Stewart, mm-hmm. U- U- Stewart, U- union steward. And... Um, The issue was there was something called the Reserve Clause. The Reserve Clause says that if the Knicks draft me, I can't go anywhere else unless the Knicks trade me or allow me to go. It was in perpetuity bound to the Knicks. Well, we felt that was unfair as a union. And so we uh, we also got wind that there was another league at that time and so we thought, now we have a chance for another league. and Maybe they'll be bidding.
1: Competition, yeah.
2: But we got wind that they were going to do the same thing that the football players did, ABA, AFL and NFL, and that merge was merge. And in order to do that, you had to have an antitrust exemption. Russell Long got that uh, for them when he was a, a senator from Louisiana in exchange for New Orleans getting an NFL team. And so we went down there. We organized. We testified for the Judiciary Committee. We visited senators and congressmen, made our case. And so we stopped that. But But the issue was, how do you break the Reserve Clause? Well, we filed a lawsuit. It was called the Robertson lawsuit.
1: Named for Oscar Robertson, one of the greatest players of all time.
2: And who was the president of the Players Union at that time. And it was that lawsuit that broke the reserve clause. The judge agreed with us, and the reserve clause was broken. And Oscar, who's got great leadership skills and is a wonderful human being, and he's never gotten credit for this. That's why when I hear Sam Smith has written this book, and yes. I love talking to him about it, that's great because Oscar will get the credit he deserves as being the guy who stood up and said yes. As a players' union, we're going to do this, right? And, and not course, for
1: himself because he was one of the better-paid yeah, players well, in the league. But for all the other guys who were getting, well, he abused. did it.
2: He did it for all players in the future. You ask people today, why is the uh, average salary in the NBA next year going to be almost eight million dollars? Because people can bid for their services,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and there's always some crazy owner who'll pay more.
1: Well, it's a great book. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. I'm biased because I think Sam's a, a great writer and a great guy, but it's an important thing, to, an important period to remember. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with uh, Senator Bill Bradley. So I, I forget who it was who came to recruit you for Southern Illinois University. Harry Gallatin. Harry Gallatin, yes. Harry the Horse Gallatin played for the Knicks as well. Uh, and, uh, he, he purports that you said at the time that when he asked you what you wanted to do long-term in your life, that you wanted to be president of the United States. Is that an apocryphal story? That
2: is an apocryphal story. When did you? This is Harry's reinterpretation 40 years later. (laughs) I mean, he did recruit me and actually we lost on a Friday night to our big rival, and the next morning at 9 o'clock, I was back in the gym, and they still had the seats down and the popcorn, and Harry showed up at that moment. So he became somebody who really, you know, promoted me, but that story is not
1: something I would <laughs> How, say. when did you start thinking about public service as a career?
2: Well, when I was in high school, growing up in this little town, my... Um, Family had a basement, and in the basement were Life magazines from the 1930s. So my way of understanding and re- seeing the world was reading these Life magazines. And so I always dreamed that I would go, and I would like, and I grew up in a family where service was important, not the idea of public service, but service to your fellow mm-hmm. man. And so I decided I wanted to be a diplomat. That's how I was going to serve. I'd travel the world, I would represent the United States foreign policy. And so one of the reasons I applied uh or, or th- applied to Princeton was because of the Woodrow Wilson School. Mm-hmm. Because that was a diplomat training uh, uh program. Um well, you know, it turns out my friend my friend I and then I, the story is I signed an athletic scholarship to go to Duke and the Duke class was supposed to begin on a Wednesday, the Princeton freshman class on a Monday. On a Friday night, I came home from a date and said, i changed my mind. I want to go to Princeton. Next day, they called the admissions office. And on Sunday night, I was headed to New Jersey. And the coach didn't even know I was there for five days. It was not
1: probably not well appreciated by the Duke people. Huh? No,
2: I, I spent a very tearful evening writing a long letter to the coach, Vic Bubas. <laughs> Uh-huh. But um, I think that the point here is that uh, life has its turns, you know. And I ended up at Princeton, and that was, turned out to be make all the difference in the world. And I remember one day sitting on the Senate floor and with Terry Sanford. Now, Terry Sanford had been JFK's young com- commerce secretary, he had been governor of North Carolina twice, and he mm-hmm. had been great integrationist. Yeah, yeah. President of Duke for ten years. So we're sitting on the Senate floor, and he looks over at me. He says, "Just as well you didn't go to Duke." Well, I thought, "What? What do you mean? What do you mean, Terry?" He said, "Because you'd have never beaten Jesse Helms." <laughs> <laughs> I thought, "You know, you're right. You're right."
1: But you. But and and he had a, <clears throat> you you. You did look for a place to run for office. You considered running in Missouri and you, well, where you were I was, from.
2: My, I, you know, my home was the small town on the banks of the Mississippi River. So I thought if I'm going to do it, I'll go back there. But then I realized that I was much more comfortable in uh, New Jersey and the East since I'd lived here for 10 years, 12 years. And I uh, then decided that since my wife then was teaching in uh, the New Jersey college system and I'd been in the Air Force in New Jersey um, and I'd gone to Princeton and I'd spoken all over the state uh, when I was uh, you know, making religious testimonies when I was in college. That you know New Jersey was the place that makes sense, and so uh, that 's where I left New York and moved to new jersey
1: so you, you and you left the you you retired in what 77? 77. and in seventy eight you 're running for the United States Senate uh,
2: roughly one year after I played my last game, I was a democratic nominee yeah uh, in New Jersey now in what would be viewed as a hopeless race against a twenty four year incumbent republican liberal republican. Who everybody thought would uh, wipe the floor, Clifford Case. Components. Yeah, Clifford Case, mm-hmm. and uh, instead a young tax-cutting conservative beat him in the primary. Right, and then in the first campaign, uh, and I think what ensued was one of the more unusual campaigns. We debated, we debated each other twenty-one times, <laughs> and his big issues were tax cuts and the gold standard. I uh-huh. tried to move it to the 20th you know, the century economy or <laughs> try to move it to uh, environment or transportation or the shore we always got back to this so we knew each we knew each other's lines so well we <laughs> knew what others were going to say so we were uh we we're debating before a county chamber of commerce and we get into the arcane arcania of the gold standard you know and I look out in the audience and I see these guys, you know, these small businessmen look at each other and <laughs> I think of them saying, this is our choice. <laughs> and uh, But it was a great campaign. And he, later when I uh, became an advocate for tax reform, he became an ally. Uh-huh. And I remember on election night, uh, not election night, but the night the Tax Reform Act passed in 1986. I went back to my office uh, with my chief of staff, the chief tax person, my wife, I was the head of Common Cause, and my opponent in 1978. He was part of the group, huh? And we popped the bottle of champagne to celebrate the victory.
1: Did it strike you as, uh, I mean, the the nature of celebrity that uh, you could? Step off the court and into the Senate. I mean, obviously, you were sure.
2: A- I mean, it was a it was a great value to me uh, that people had seen me every Wednesday and Friday night on television in away games for ten years. Um, it was celebrity, but it was a little bit more. You know, they, when you're on the foul line with ten seconds to go, you either make it or not, and when you lose, or you. Handle how you handle things. People form an idea of who you are, and that meant that I'd have 200 people in a room when I went to campaign, because they were curious. Instead of 20, which meant I had an opportunity to succeed or fail before 200 people.
1: Mm-hmm. So ultimately, you're saying you still had to deliver yeah, in front of those 200. It was, an, people. it was
2: an advantage, but you know that meant. They came in, and you had to deliver.
1: So there are a few things that you concentrated on in the Senate. Um, and, uh, well, be- before I get that, actually, I want to ask you about one quote from your basketball days that may uh, inc- that may lead into a- this issue of tax reform. Your coach at Princeton, uh, Butch Van Bredekoff, said, I think Bradley's happiest whenever he can deny himself pleasure. Uh, and... Uh, well, I can't think of a more uh, kind of punishing task than take taking on an issue like tax reform yeah. uh, what What led you to uh, to that issue? Well, when I was a player,
2: I uh, read some articles by a Harvard law professor named Stanley Surrey and then some by Joe Peckman and a ac- tax economist who developed the concept of essentially tax expenditures, which are the credits, exclusions, and deductions that people use to reduce their tax and leave the rest of us paying more than we should. And then I read an article about Milton Friedman who said that you could get, if you didn't have any of that, you could get a flat tax of 16%. And I thought, hmm, what if you put those two together? You could probably do pretty well if you cut the rates and eliminated the loopholes. So that was, and I remember when I was running the first time against this tax-cutting conservative, I went to Washington and, I, and talked to Russell Long, who was the chairman of the finance committee, and said, can you, do I, talk to joint tax committee? Give me some tax thing that I could go against. So I got to know Russell. I got on the, got on the finance committee in my first year, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. And that then gave me a platform. I wrote a book about tax reform uh, three years after I'd been in the Senate, laid out the broad parameters of what Surrey and Peckman and others have said, and um, got Dick Gephardt to sponsor it in the House. And then um, in 1984, um, the book was out, and I wanted to get Walter Mondale. To endorse the the Democratic nominee, endorse the the concept, and say that he'd push for it. In doing so, Democrats would take the tax initiative away from Republicans. Well, he'd been on the Finance Committee, and he knew Charlie Rangel was there, and he'd been on the Finance Committee on the Ways and Means Committee. This could never happen. We're not interested. But Reagan had gotten wind, and his people, that this was possible. And so Reagan, before the campaign was over, called for a study by the Treasury Department of tax reform. And the Treasury came out with a study done by the professionals at uh, at Treasury, tax professionals. And the result was uh, a really great bill. Well, hows were elicited and came back and did what was called Treasury 2.0. And then there was a shift between Jim Baker, who went from the chief of staff to the treasury secretary, and um, we managed to do it, uh, working together.
1: Talk a little bit about the obstacles to it, because all of those tax preferences that you talk about are someone's baby, some lobbyist, some industry, some uh, interest group. Uh, there was a great book about that fight called uh, Showdown at Gucci Gulch uh, that had to do with uh, just the, the enormous onslaught from lobbyists to try and keep their preferences in the tax code. How, yeah. how, how were you able to overcome that?
2: Well, there was real leadership uh, by Dan Rosankowski, yeah. In who the was House chairman, Ways and Means
1: Committee. Ways and Means He wasn't and, chairman at the time, was yeah, he? Yeah, he was chairman. He, was
2: he? And Bob Packwood, who was the chairman of the Finance Committee. And Reagan had gotten behind
1: it. a Democrat, Packwood, right. a Republican.
2: And Reagan had gotten behind it, and Baker was honchoing it. And it went the normal route, and Rostankowski passed the bill just because of his own clout, and it kind of limped to the Senate. And so the Senate, and he called Packwood and said, okay, you're going to have to help me out here. You're going to have to do the, the heavy lifting. And Packwood then uh, actually started down the road and got totally bogged down, at which point he, he and his chief of staff went out and had a beer. And over a pitcher of beer, they said, we're going to try that comprehensive tax reform thing that Bradley talked about and that the president has mentioned, right? So, Packwood became a fierce tax reform advocate, great ability as chairman, smart enough to know you had to strike fast and you had to be bipartisan. Convened a a group of uh, five, uh, three Democrats, three Republicans in his office. And over a period of, I think, about 12 days, we met about four or five hours a day and wrote the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Went to the committee, Pushed it, introduced it. We all hung together, no matter what. There were three Republicans, three Democrats, and they passed the committee twenty to zero, and then went to the floor, and uh, passed the floor ninety-seven
1: to three. The on the theory that if you're going to leap, everybody leaps together, uh, and no one was going to take undue advantage of the other side in uh, uh, in passing it. Um, did. You, you reduced the, the top tax rate from 50% yeah. to 29%, yeah. created three brackets, and you uh, did away with many, many of the. Yeah, we, we cut holes. the
2: top rate from 50 to 28. Uh, 14 was the second rate, and eliminated at that time 30 or $40 billion worth of loopholes. And yet, after that passed, the following years, the more of the tax burden was paid by the top 1% than previous, even though the top rate dropped from 50 to 28, because those were the exact people that were using all the Mm loopholes, all of the tax shelters. And in fact, that was my first encounter with Donald Trump because he was vociferously against this bill because we were taking away some of his real estate tax breaks. Yeah. And, um, but we hung together and managed to push it through. And it could not have happened without bipartisanship. And, you know, about three years ago, Packwood and I were asked to come to the finance committee and talk about this. So we were talking about how it was done, the, the you know, the bipartisan group. And it became pretty clear that, to me, that we were really having fun, mm-hmm. doing something very big that affected over 100 million Americans and crafting and moving and passing something that big, and I looked around at the guys who were on the fi- members of the finance committee, and said, "You guys having any fun?" <laughs> and of course, they shake their head, no, they're not having <laughs> any fun because they're not legislating. Yeah, that was we were legislating. Yeah, and you know the key thing in legislation is you got to listen to the other side and yeah. find some common ground.
1: Let me ask you one. I, I want to ask you about where we are today, but there was one aspect of that tax reform that really intrigued me, which was that um, capital gains taxes and taxes on wages were set at the same level. In other words, capital and labor were taxed at (laughs) the same rate. That strikes me as making eminently good sense, as fair, as just, Tell me the thinking behind that. Sure. And, uh, I
2: mean, uh, it's good tax policy for capital and labor to be taxed the same. So there's a substantive rationale for that. But, of course, there was the capital gains uh, tax exclusion. And I remember going to Silicon Valley, which at that time wasn't as big, but it was still very uh, powerful, and saying we're going to eliminate the capital gains. and. People were outraged, and they said, well, we appreciate you telling us what you feel. We did 30 hearings. Every hearing, we said, how low would the top rate have to go before you'd give up the capital gains exclusion? At that time, the capital gains rate was 28%. People said, well, maybe 28%. So we passed the law with 28% top rate. The taxed uh, capital and labor, the same. And there was a provision in the bill that if any, if the rate ever went up, the capital gains rate would be 28%. And so it was a, um, it made eminent sense, and it showed real leadership on Packwood and Rostankowski's part and Baker's part, because he knew what was going on. He was the one who was un- inundated by the interest. I mean, I give a lot of credit to Jim Baker. Because, you know, people say to me now, well, we are going to get tax reform? I said, you need the following things if you're going to get tax reform. You need a president who is viscerally committed. Ronald Reagan was because tax rates were 90 percent and he wanted tax rates to drop. I was because when I was a player, I was a depreciable asset. Right. And so you need a president who's committed. You need to have a fight, a treasury secretary who knows the substance and can cut a deal, you need to have the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee and the Finance Committee see their political interest being served by pushing something against the grain of Washington, as usual. And then, you know, it helps if you have a zealot. That was my role. I was a zealot. <laughs> but, you know, you, you got to get all those things together before you can actually get something of, of that significance, that complicated through. And you have to know how to legislate. I mean, you know, we did this thing, we did this in 11 to 12 days. And we knew what we had to do because soon the interest would be awakened. Mm-hmm. And they thought it was over. They thought it was over when Packwood ended a meeting of the Finance Committee and went to have the beer. <laughs>
1: We're going to be right back with Bill Bradley. Since that time 30 years ago, the tax code has become uh even more uh complex more larded with uh loopholes and preferences uh and this wasn't just the province of one party or the other no uh, i mean
2: uh, that the rate was twenty eight percent in and no capital gains in um nineteen eighty six george Bush is elected in nineteen eighty eight In his first year, people come back in, we need the capital gains exclusion. I said, look, you get the capital gains exclusion, there's only one thing that's going to happen. The rate's going to go up. Well, we think, so they wanted their thing. The Exclusion was put back in by Clinton, and the rate went to 39%. And so you look at this and you say, um, nothing is forever. And certainly, uh, even some of these biggest tax reform didn't last in the form we passed, partially because of the interest, partially because people see the tax code as a feeding trough for special interests, and so now the um, isn't part. Isn't, the value of the loopholes now
1: is over a trillion dollars. Isn't it partly also because it is easier to provide uh, tax expenditure incentives for? Socially laudable goals than it is to say we want to spend government money on. Yeah,
2: this. I mean that's what Clinton did. I mean Clinton larded the code with these provisions that supposed to serve a social purpose, but they had to be so arcane and so narrow. Well, what were they about? I mean, you can have a deduction if your grandmother has dementia between the age of sixty-eight and forty and and seventy-two. You know, they, be, they become simply spending through the tax code and never reviewed as to its effectiveness. I'd much rather have an appropriation for my grandmother who has dementia and then an oversight, did this actually work or not? Because yeah. once they get in the code, they're forgotten.
1: The interesting thing is that both things were legacies of Reagan. Reagan had the courage to push for uh, tax reform, but he also so demonized spending... Uh, that it became uh politically unpalatable to suggest an expenditure for your uh grandmother with dementia, yeah. and instead everyone started going in the back door uh, on this, but now we are where we are um, what wh- Have you been called by the way by anybody to consult it, wh- tax reform is now being is a mantra down there in washington uh The president says he wants it. The leaders of Congress uh, say—the Republican leaders of Congress say they want Mm -hmm. it, and they want to do it quickly. Um, Do you see any of this coming together in a way that will actually produce tax reform?
2: I I think it's highly unlikely. Uh, I talked to Ron Wyden, who's the ranking Mm -hmm. member on the Finance Committee, and other Democrats. Uh, I haven't had any contact with uh, Republicans on this, But uh, for the reasons I outlined... Do you think the president this,
1: is, is committed to actual reform?
2: No, I don't. I think that he wants something. And at the end of the day, when you get... He wants to and, sign something. wants to sign something. Anything. Anything. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, uh, it's going to come down to, uh, you know, what can I get? I mean... We had a set of principles that guided us. Equal incomes pay equal tax. Those who have more should pay more, right? Things that we could measure what we're doing against. And now we don't even know what the bill is. We don't even know what the bill is. And the idea you're gonna have something as complex as tax reform and put it out there and pass it immediately, I think is naive. It's naive. The only thing they can do maybe is they could get a repatriation of foreign capital if 30% of that was placed into government infrastructure bonds Mm -hmm. so that you get repatriators of capital financing Because this is
1: one of the effects of a distorted tax code is you've got corporations that are parking vast sums of money overseas uh, through uh, sort of legal devices that let them call those places... Headquarters.
2: But the question is, can he get anything? He could get that, I think, if, uh, Democrat, if Democrats controlled the kind of infrastructure. You know, not tax credits to a few rich friends, but real efforts to build high-speed rail, to yeah. build ports, to build this, that, and the
1: other thing. And, because we should explain the difference because you can give— uh, tax credits to wealthy investors who probably would go forward with projects anyway, but to build the kind of infrastructure that is most needed in the country roads and bridges and uh, the kinds of basic repairs that are needed uh, that aren't necessarily as lucrative to the investor um, you wouldn't get that without no, I mean, uh, infrastructure. You
2: need uh, what are the 50 top priority national priority. Infrastructure projects. And then you go down the list and fund them. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know that the tendency is when you get here, you got to spread it over every congressional district. So you spread it very thin over everything, and nothing significant happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's great for the bridge in Kankakee that went over the old town, or went over the other highway, but. How does that add to national, compared with putting a new air traffic control system mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. which saves billions of dollars, high-speed rail, port investment? You begin to make these kind of significant national investments. You then are beginning to deal with what's the backbone of the 21st century.
1: You uh, talk to me a little about, the. You, we hear from the president that, and uh, congressional leaders, that essential to this is, again, reducing the capital gains tax. You're in finance. That's what you've done, a part of what you've done. You're doing a lot of public service-oriented things as well. What's your analysis of that in terms of growth?
2: (laughs) I mean, the argument is lower, lower taxes produce more growth. I haven't seen the evidence of that. I think that the tax reform act which were lower tax rates but eliminating loopholes i think helped i remember paul volcker coming to me in 1987 he was the chairman of the federal reserve saying you got to do this tax bill why is that he says cuz i'm trying with interest rates to get these real estate tax shelters out but i can't do it you got to change the law and part of that was treating capital and labor the same mm-hmm. so If you simply cut the capital gains rate or this crazy carried interest thing where income that's really income is treated as capital gains for a small group of people, mm -hmm. um, you're going to get very little growth because of that and a great distortion in benefit toward the upper levels because that's where the the capital is. Just exacerbating the problems that we've already seen. The rate's 20 now. Maybe 23. Well, if it goes to 15, is that going to make a big difference?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I don't think so. We I mean, also keep the, in mind the all The reality these, is that
1: we've got a lot of corporations. <laughs> we've got record amounts of capital being held uh, that already. So it's not as if there's a lack of capital uh, available. And
2: Well, you know, what has happened, <laughs> this is one of my hobby horses at the moment, is that... Um, credit is allocated in, to the wrong things in America. Uh, if you take, uh, you know, a high tech company, uh, they don't need much capital because they invent a software. That, what's that cost? And mm-hmm. it lasts forever, right? Or hardware, not a whole lot of capital. What you need for capital is investment in plant and equipment in mm-hmm. various places, right? But the whole code, because the, you treat debt and equity the same, is skewed toward real estate and large urban real estate in particular. So you could argue to the, uh, the people in, in southern Ohio or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, look, the money that should be coming into your uh, communities from community banks that will help generate jobs here is being taken by large real estate interests in major metropolitan areas of this country. And so—
1: <clears throat> I don't think Mr. Trump's going to make that argument. I
2: don't think he will either, but the yeah. facts are the facts.
1: So uh, another area of, of focus for you and expertise for you was had, was Russia when you were um, yeah. in the Senate. Uh, d- tell me wh- wh- what has happened in the relationship there, and how do we—where wh- do we go from here? Well, it it
2: saddens me profoundly, uh, the relationship between Russia and the United States today. I think that uh, it was not handled well in the Clinton years. I think that the original sin of where we are now was the expansion of NATO. I had a friend who ran for president of Russia in 1996 and said he was out campaigning in the Urals. An older woman came up to him. And said, are the Americans our friends now? And this guy who was a liberal Democrat said, absolutely. The Cold War is over. They're our friends. And she then looked at him and said, well, if they aren't friends, why are they, uh, why are they sponsoring the expansion of a military alliance toward our borders, right? So the real question is, did we really give this a chance? And my argument all along is, and, and then when Yeltsin came in, we just helped. The leader, we were identified with the leader. Of course, that meant you know, 1,000% inflation, 30% unemployment, as opposed to helping Russian people. If we had instead, say, put scrubbers on the dirty plants in the 40 places where it's 10 times more polluted than anywhere else in the world, we could have made a difference. Oh, the Americans did that. Mm-hmm. And so I look at this now, and I say, that was the original sin. And of course, I believe that we didn't listen to the Russians or seek real partnership with the Russians. And I think then what happened, Putin came back a second time. And I think the second time uh, was a much different uh, idea. Invasion of Ukraine, you know, it's just, it's not sustainable. I personally believe that when we decided to go for regime change in Libya, after saying to the Russians, no, we're not going to do that. That was the moment Putin said, I'm coming back. Medvedev's not going to have another term. And he came back explicitly having lost trust in the relationship and then making a few very bad decisions like the invasion of Ukraine. Now the interference in our elections, you know the, the, the devising of a strategy, the purpose of which is disinformation, fake news, And trying to actually determine, increase the level of anger in the country, and determine the outcome of a presidential election. You know, he's made himself, you know, he set things way back. Now, we can have a choice. We can either say, okay, we're back in the Cold War. Or we can say, look, there are certain things that we still share. Let's reduce nuclear weapons. Let's reduce nuclear weapons. Uh, We do believe that we should counter some uh, terrorism in the world. Um, But you can't get a common agenda uh, in a circumstance where the Russians have done what the Russians have done in the last five years. And and,
1: uh, just finally, uh, uh, your sense of American politics. Now, you ran for president in 2000. You ran on a... uh, Mm. A, a platform that spoke to some of the issues that are still around today, health care, the pernicious influence of money, which has taken a a, a, a worse turn uh, since you ran and so on. And then, you know, we've had uh, this very convulsive election, and we have uh, the president. How do you assess where we are uh, in our politics? And what, what, what do you think... Um, alternative leaders should be offering Democrats and, yeah. re- and Republicans alike?
2: Well, I think we're at a very serious juncture in this country. I think there are forces on the right, the Koch brothers being the funder of them, who believe that the purpose of democracy is to protect economic liberty. Fighting global warming hurts economic liberty from their standpoint. A public schools hurt. They should all be private. Taxes, that, that's, that's a taking, an unfair taking from somebody's economic liberty fruits, right? And this uh, uh, this ideology is now out there in every state of the union. And organizations are established that write laws for state legislatures. If you take the Obama years, the 11 senators were lost, 13 governors, 69 congressmen, and 913 state legislatures. So if you ask me where you start here, you've got to start with state legislatures. And I'm so glad that what I hear um, Eric Holder yeah. is going to do, but they've got to get going because it's not really sneaking up on people like the Republicans did in 2010. They can't sneak up. Everybody knows what the battle is, and you got to go out there and organize. And to me, that's what it's all about. It's about protecting voting rights, getting more people to vote, and changing the system through the franchise. And unless you recognize that, we're going to end up in a situation where, I mean, we're on a very, very uh, slippery slope here. If the if Republicans ever got control of the Senate, meaning got control with 60 votes, they'd have control of the House, the Senate, the presidency, the Supreme Court, 36 governors, and most state legislatures. And then you have the Koch agenda, protect economic liberty. If you look at that, and then you see what the Koch people say as well, they say, look... Um, <clears throat> Why do we have this big government? It's because we increase participation and government response to the voters. So what we have to do is decrease participation. We have to, we have to decrease voting rights. We have to make it more difficult for people to vote. We have to move uh, polling places, this, that, and the other thing. And that's the stake that's going on right now. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, is actually not a part of this, other than he's given the coke people and the person of Pence the blank check to do whatever they want to do at EPA, at health care, or voter rights, whatever, right? And I see this and I say, that's where it is. That's before we get to the role money plays in politics. It's Well, insane. that's certainly
1: related to the coke. It's network. definitely
2: related to the coke mm-hmm. And gerrymandering... Supreme Court's now considering a Wisconsin case. If they ever really did say that the partisan gerrymandering exists and set another standard and have independent commissions that have to organize districts that are as uh, 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 close as possible, you know, 51-49, it would be a different country. And, you know, the money thing, we're stuck. We're stuck with this Supreme Court. Because they say money is speech. Mm-hmm. To limit money limits speech. And they're likely to do that. But that doesn't mean that you can't either do your version of what Koch does, organize state legislatures, et cetera, et cetera, have a plan. Have. Uh, but it also means that you can you can go out there and uh, promote public financing and that. You know, All all matters who's elected. If you can get the votes, you can change anything in the country. My fear is they have been on the advance with the votes in the broadest sense for the last 10 years. And we have had an extraordinary leader in President Obama. And at the same time, we've kind of allowed ourselves to be lulled into the feeling that an extraordinary leader at the top actually can make all this happen when it takes people in the middle and in the bottom who are out there working no matter who the president right. is
1: right right before we go I mean, you no, got me off no that's okay that's all right uh, but before we go i just have to ask you this um do you miss <clears throat> politics because i always get the sense that that you you liked policy and the ability. Yeah, i miss the- i mean yeah i miss two
2: things I miss uh, not doing public policy 24 hours a day. I love that. And I miss the people in all of their, you know, shapes, frustrations, uh, fears, hopes, dreams. And so I try to fill each of those voids because they're there. They were filled by politics. Now I write, try to write books or op-eds or articles or come up with new ideas about how credit's misallocated or whatever. Um on the substantive side. And on the people side, you know, for 13 years I've had my radio show called American Voices, where I interview people about their lives. And in the course of the interviews, people reveal themselves about their lives. Two types of interviews, one about the dignity of work, which are people who are doing something unusual, jobs, groundskeeper at Fenway Park, public health nurse in the Aleutian Islands. Or people who are doing something selfless in their community, like the guy that shined shoes for 46 years in the Pittsburgh Children's Hospital. And out of every tip, he put a portion of that tip into a fund to pay for poor kids' health care. And the day I interviewed him, he put over $100,000 in that Mm. fund. So the idea here, and I think this is something that I hope President Obama will also do, is we have to learn to respect each other. We have to learn. You can disagree, but you have to have support. President common.
1: Obama or President Trump? No, no. President, you mean encourage encourage more encouraging civility? Encouraging yes.
2: civil debate, yeah. civilized yeah. discussions. Yeah. Because if you look at the Trump, uh, the people who elected Trump, I think there's a large segment of them that don't feel respected.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's And
2: weird. I think that, that, I mean, you know, I used to do town meetings and New Jersey's 40% Catholic. Someone said, what about abortion? And I would say, well, I'm pro-choice, and but I really appreciate how you reached your decision because of your deep religious convictions. And I think about Christianity. You know, it is okay. You view that on abortion, but Jesus also talks about uh, helping the poor, protecting the world, protecting the climate, not being militarist, right? So you begin to find that way into the other. Uh, the, the person who you thought... Well, really I like anymore. what you're
1: doing because, and it's part of why I started doing this podcast, I think it's harder yeah. to hate people if you know their stories.
2: Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, there, there are no moderates. There are liberals and there are conservatives. Some people are liberal in these three areas, conservative in those three areas. So you have to find where's your way in to touch the button in someone who agrees with you Sufficiently to give you the vote, even though they disagree with you on something else. Right,
1: but the key is that you, you need to concede that you may not agree on 100%.
2: Of course you don't.
1: Right. You
2: and I wouldn't agree on 100%. But
1: absolutism is really astride our politics right now, and it's very destructive.
2: Well, it's courtesy of the Koch brothers. And courtesy others. Courtesy of I mean, Trump.
1: Uh, well, Cur- there, are, there are a, whole, a lot. I mean, yes, no, yeah, there are a lot, there ta- a lot of. We didn't even talk lot, about that. But it's yeah. just.
2: <laughs> I mean, you know, it's uh, just—I can't believe this. Actually, it's just—it's sad, dangerous, and it's uh, something that you know we're going to be with for a while. And just have to organize and get out there and do what we can.
1: Well, I—I uh, I don't want to leave on a as that sober a note. So well, I, will you... saying, I will leave by saying—I will leave by saying. Thank you for being here, and thank you for those two championships. I was going to say, you I, want to talk about the seventy I, and 73 I, championships. I loved, I loved every minute of it. Yeah, well, Greatest be- basketball ever. Smartest, most fun team to watch ever.
2: People say, you know, what was better, winning two Senate three Senate races are winning two championships and I said well when you're elected to the Senate that means you have the opportunity to work 16 hours a day for six years to prove that people weren't wrong when you are elected when you are uh, the world champion you stand with your fists in the air chills going up and down your spine smile aching and you realize that that lasts about 48 hours but that is a beautiful 48 hours
1: I bet it is yeah Bill Bradley so good to be with you thank Thank you you, David I really
2: respect what you
1: do thank you
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.